This is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you the stories of our men and women in uniform. And now Jesse brings us the story of a nonprofit organization that puts guitars into the hands of war veterans. Thousands of war veterans are afflicted with PTSD. More soldiers have committed suicide since the Vietnam War than have died in actual battle. 22 veterans commit suicide every day, but a lot of them are finding some hope by playing the guitar. It's pretty simple. It's a program called Guitars for Vets, and it helps provide the guitars and free lessons. Check this out. Alpha Delta Echo. And E for Echo. We're a, a, a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We were started 10 years ago, and we give guitar lessons to veterans. And we have found over the course of the 10 years that if you have problems, if, you, if you're having issues coping, or if, if life just becomes stressful, playing the guitar helps. Teachers donate their time, and uh, companies donate the uh, guitars and you know tuners and whatever, what have you, and. Uh, it's good therapy, if nothing else. It's good therapy for uh, post-traumatic stress, for therapy for anything that ails you. I don't know how many of you are musicians or how many of you play, but those that do will understand what I'm talking about when I say you can pick up a guitar and start playing, and the next thing you know, two hours is gone. And it's like, where did that go? Well, you're at peace for those two hours. You're having a good time, your mind quiets down, and things just become okay. And this is how it helps veterans with PTSD. It helps quiet them down and it helps them feel good about themselves and have a positive experience. Started coming to the VA. I come here for about 10 years and then I found out about the recreation program and that they offer guitar lessons. So I took them, I took the 10, 10 lessons. I think it was one of the best things I did. It's very good for me. The guitar helps you even if all you're doing is plucking the strings. It helps bring out whatever it is emotionally that you're trying to relax out of you. For me, I enjoy the company myself. It's a very good group of guys. I mean, I mean, these guys, these guys know what they're doing. Some of our better instructors have been minimalist guitar players. They may be the first position chords or whatever, but they're so good teaching people, and they they you, you, they can guide people through it, and they can make them feel like it's a success. The program is supposed to be a positive learning experience for everybody, so you don't want to make anybody feel like they failed or they're not keeping up with the program. It's just it's supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be fun. And the, that's really what you need from an instructor is the ability to communicate that and be patient and empathetic with what the veterans are going through. It's a difficult thing for to find an instructor who has the flexibility to teach somebody who have who doesn't have any vision and figure out a way to show me how to play a guitar and I will say it was a uh, it was a good experience for both of us it made him a better teacher and it also made me a better student he was trying to teach me how to finger pick so I enjoyed it I could listen to him all day just finger pick on their music, so it's good. Are you a pretty good finger picker now? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do. And 
but I still try. When I'm home, I try. It seems to me that the, the, the instrument tells you what type of music you're going to play. So I ended up, when I was taking piano lessons and playing piano, I would play love songs. I thought it would be the same that my guitar, I would learn how to play love songs on the guitar. But that's not true. The guitar said, you're going to play the blues. So I ended up playing the blues with the guitar. It just helps you calm down and de-stress. And it is, it's the best de-stressor I know of. And believe me, I, I, I use it at home all the time. But I would say you've got nothing to lose by doing it. It's, it's just, it's, it's a great program. And, and we know it helps. We know it can help you. So, you know. All non-judgmental. Come in and enjoy. Now, Guitars for Vets has fulfilled over 25,000 lessons and distributed over 2,500 guitars for free to military veterans. If you want to help out by donating $200, you can send one veteran through the program. That's guitarsforvets.org, and this is Our American Stories. And again, that's guitarsforvets.org. And by the way, this could just be something that you should think about for yourself or your family. Uh, an instrument, playing it, what it can do for you. That's why we spend so much time on music here on this show, and we spend a lot of time on vets. Jesse's really good at bringing disparate things that we care about together. I know another program that's uh, dealing with equestrians for vets up in Memphis. My little girl does that, and teaches vets how to ride, gets them at peace. And that's what we're all looking for in the end, is that inner peace. It's half of why we do this show here in Our American Stories. No screaming, no yelling. We've heard from so many of you uh, the thanks that you get for our tone, for the way we carry ourselves. Uh, And in this day and age, it's just hard to come across things that put you at peace. And so thanks again, Jesse, for finding this. Pick up a guitar one day. Go get an old used piano. Just start playing it. Just start strumming it. Just start tickling the keyboards. I like to do nothing better at my home. This is Our American Stories, Guitar for Vets. And by the way, this shows what so many people here do with their free time in this country. And as they give of their time, it's not always their money they can give, but my goodness, we can give of our time. Guitarsforvets.org, their story, these soldiers' stories who've been helped and healed by this ministry. And it is a ministry here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series, which is sponsored, as always, by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, working hard to perpetuate policies that help small businesses become big ones. And as we tell you over and over again, without small businesses, where do the tax dollars come to support our firemen, our police, and everything else that we care about, including the safety net here in our great country? And today, Aubrey Riggle brings us the story of someone you likely don't know, but will be glad to have met. I got married at 16, and I had my first child when I was 17, and my next child at 18, and my next child at 19. So I ended up with three babies, and finally my aunt told me to call the last one caboose and let it be the end. You're listening to Marcia Taylor, likely the first woman to own and operate a trucking company, Bennett International Group. But before she was a leading businesswoman, she was a young mom of three babies, growing a startup business into what is now one of the biggest trucking companies in America. I grew up in Southern Illinois on a small farm with my mother and father and brother that was seven years younger than I was. My mother always had a big garden and she had a lot of chickens and I would help her can. And my dad always had a lot of wheat and soybeans and corn. So we'd help him in the fields and it was a great way to grow up. When I was 14, my father, he had been sick and he just uh, got up and just passed out. And I mean, he just, right then he just died and left my mother and I and, and my little brother Duane with a farm. It was just a devastating time for me. I ended up being the kind of the responsible one in the family. I married really early. I think I was being a little rebellious. My husband and I lived on the farm and he worked on the railroad and I was a housewife. Neither one of us was really ready to be married nor ready for the responsibility that having three small children. And my husband started drinking and it just become a very, very abusive relationship, both physically and mentally. I knew I was going to have to try to get away to get out of that situation. Some of the people in our neighborhood had bought the rights to this small trucking company in Georgia. I'd said, well, you know, I'd like to go to Georgia. And uh, so they, there was an opening and I jumped at the chance. I knew nothing about trucking. I, I mean, literally nothing. But I knew it might be a way for me to get the children and to move to a different location. We loaded everything we had up with a truck and a 40-foot van, and all of our belongings took up about 10 feet of that van. And we moved to Georgia and moved into a mobile home and was able to, at that point, file for divorce. I was working, and I had the children were like the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Actually, the man that I went to work for, we ended up getting together, and uh, we ended up getting married. My mother had not been in the best of health. We called her and asked her if she wanted to come to Georgia and live with us and help with the children so I could really focus on work. So we worked really hard, and in 1974, we had the opportunity to buy this little small trucking company that had 15 trucks and 30 trailers and we only had like $500 in cash to be able to start this business, but they sold it to us on credit. 
in order for us to make payroll. I would do all the billing on Wednesday, get everything billed, and one of us would take all of our invoices and meet one of our drivers halfway. Our driver would pick up the invoices, take them to our customer, and he would process them, write a check. We'd do the same thing. The driver would meet us halfway, pick up the check, deposit it in the bank, and so I could make payroll on Friday. Our customer helped save us all through that time by getting our invoices processed so I could make payroll. I don't think you could start a business with $500 and do what we did now because of the way that the industry is and the way that people want to pay your invoices. Now customers want to wait 60, 120 days before they pay you. It was a difficult time, but I look back and it was, it was a good time. We were working to build this company together. Marcia was finally getting the business on solid footing until the ground was taken out from under her. My husband, J.D., uh, was a heavy smoker and it was really affecting his health. We had gone to Houston, Texas to look at a rail site for one of our customers. And while we were there, I saw this billboard and it was advertising a stop smoking clinic. He knew he needed to stop smoking because it was causing him to begin to have emphysema. So we went to this uh, smoking clinic that was attached to one of the large hospitals. They injected him in the nose and in his ear and in his throat. And we went home and the middle of the next week, we were at work and, and my husband said, you know, I, I, I don't feel well, I think I need to go home. So he went home, and whenever I got there, I went into our bedroom to check on him, and he was just burning up. So I said, I think we need to take you to the emergency room, because he never got sick. So they started checking him, and his blood pressure kept dropping. So uh, they came, and they said, well, I think we're going to take him up to intensive care. We just want to see what's going on. The next morning at about 6 o'clock, they came out and they said, I want you to prepare yourself because I don't think he's going to make it. And I was just like, what? Well, how could this be? He was in the hospital for three days to where he, his body just started shutting down. Through those injections, he had developed a gram-negative bacteria. They had injected this bacteria into his body. They had to first find out what kind of injections he had gotten, which really wasn't much of anything. Then they had to discover what this bacteria was and and they they just couldn't stop it and they took him into surgery and he basically coded in surgery and he died the next morning so all at once I was just kind of left with this business that we had finally had gotten a bank that would take a chance on us and had gotten a small credit line and now this is back in the 80s and there really wasn't any women that was in the that was in the transportation business. Certainly nobody ran a trucking company. And I was really worried that the bank would call our note because they wouldn't trust, you know, a woman. And I have three small children that I still have to take care of and my mom. But, you know, I just had to put all my faith in God that whatever was supposed to happen, He would see me through. My drivers all just kind of gathered around. There was 30 people that worked here at that time. And everybody just said, look, we can do this. We just went to work. I bet I worked, I don't know, 60, 70 hours a week. It took a lot because we're not in a business that's an eight to five business. You don't turn the responsibility off whenever you go home. 
Through her faith, the support of her employees, and her dedication to the company, Marcia pulled through. But her children were still small, and her success came at a cost. I feel guilty that I didn't get to spend more time with my children when they were growing up. I wish I could go back and change that. I mean, my mom was there, thankfully, and she always made sure that there was a meal on the table, that they got to the ball games, that they got wherever they needed to get to. But I feel like I missed a lot. Now I've gotten to work with my children now, you know, and so I'm very fortunate in that way. When they were small, they would come to work with me. They always had to be involved. When they got sick, they slept on a cot behind my desk. They really learned it from the ground up. It's just been a great blessing to me to be able to work with my family and children. Sometimes they'll say, well, you know, it's not always easy to work with your mother. And I'll say, well, you know, it's not always easy to work with your kids either. But even my grandchildren, I don't get to spend near as much time with my grandchildren as I'd like to, even though I have four of them that work here. It's had a lot of ups and downs, but God's always seen me through. And we've been listening to Marcia Taylor, and she's the owner of the trucking company Bennett International Group. What a story thus far, and we're going to hear more on the other side. And my goodness, now we know, now you know, and we try to do this for you to empathize with the people meeting payroll, because it's no small task. And it's a heck of a responsibility to be responsible not just for yourself and your family, but for dozens of other families, and to have that pressure. And the price that's paid, I mean, she had sacrifices to make and regrets. And none of these success stories are Pollyanna Shear on Our American Stories. Everything comes with a price, folks. Everything. And when we come back, more of Marcia Taylor's story, an American dreamer's story. My goodness, as good a one as we've had here on this show after these commercial messages. More with Our American Stories. Turn to Marcia Taylor's story here on Our American Stories. And as always, again, our American Dreamers series are always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, fighting for small business owners across this great country. And when we last left off, well, Marcia knew she had to differentiate herself from all of her competitors in order to survive. And so she did. We started to say, what could be our specialty? What can we do that that limits our competition. Our niche is things that are a little bigger, a little heavier, that require tarps, that require a little bit more work to haul. Anything that's too large to be um, hauled that needs to be driven, you know, we'll put a driver in it, you name it. So today we're made up of 14 different companies that all do different types of transportation. 
We have about 3,200 drivers and owner-operators in about 400 different offices. We're an international company. We do a lot of ag equipment, air conditioners, rockets. We do a lot of work for the government. One of the newest ventures that we've just gotten into is AA&E, which is ammunition, explosives, so forth. There's only 17 carriers allowed to move AA&E. We just did the Mercedes-Benz Stadium and uh, the big Falcon that's out in front. We deliver that Falcon. We're international. We um, import and export, and we bring a lot of wine in from Argentina. We export a lot of sweet potatoes. We move a lot of manufactured housing, and when there's some sort of a national disaster, if they require manufactured housing, that we'll get involved with FEMA to help move those units. In fact, they're the largest mover of manufactured housing, better known as mobile homes, in America. They're the largest mover for the United States Department of Defense, and they're also the largest driveway company in the country, meaning their pickup truck drivers deliver upwards of 450 campers and RVs across the country every single week, and it doesn't end there. We're very involved in oil and gas and do a lot with the wind industry. We move big windmills that are being installed in all the wind farms, both by hauling and through our crane and rigging. Four years ago, we started a crane and rigging company. We have cranes up to 900 ton, and so that's a very niche market. I think God has just always led us where we needed to go. Nearly 71% of all freight moved in the United States goes on trucks. Without truck drivers, our economy would come to a standstill. Yet the American Trucking Association figures that 60,000 more drivers are needed by trucking companies. And that number is predicted to reach 100,000 in just the next few years. The trucking industry is always up and down. I mean, there's always a lot of things going on, but probably one of the, the most difficult things is finding uh, really qualified drivers that want to get into this industry. When you do have a driver come to you, you want them to enjoy working for you and you want them to stay. But our retention rate is about 39%, which is really very good. A lot of companies' retention rate is over 100%. That means her competitors are losing all of their drivers for the year, and then some. It's a tough business, but we've got a lot of drivers that's been with us for a lot of years. They get used to where they like to run, they get used to what they like to do, and, you know, they stay with us. Our business is usually one of the leading indicators of what's happening in the economy. We're usually the first to see it pick up and the first to see it slow down. Over the years, there's been numerous times that we weren't sure if, you know, we were going to have enough money. Whenever the bottom fell out of everything in the 80s, we had made like a million dollars at that point in time, which was a lot of money for us. And it's like the recession hit, and it's just like everything just stopped. In two months, we had lost the million we had made and another million. We never really wanted to lay anybody off. We worked some flexible hours, and people that could would maybe take one day off, and then some of the people that couldn't afford to take a day off, somebody else would give them their day. And so we were able to make our way through it by not having to lay anybody off. And in the 2008 recession, 
same thing. You just kind of buckle in and you just manage your balance sheet. And one thing about our business, another reason I say God is so good, is because we do different types of things. It has always seemed like when one thing was really slow or bad, one piece of the industry, something else was good. When things were so slow, we ended up getting a huge contract that saw us through. We've always come out of recessions and done well. Last year was one of the best years we have ever had in our industry, simply because I think there was so much pent-up business out there. You could just feel it. We did over a half a billion dollars. We're pretty excited about that. That was a big milestone for us. With such a big milestone in the books, does Marcia, who is now 74, have any intention of retiring soon? Like most successful business owners, absolutely not. This is my family. There's people that's been here for many, many years. I can't imagine not being here. About three or four years ago, I guess, my kids kind of said, you know, we're tired. We've been working a lot. And they've been working a lot of years. They said, we're ready to retire. And I said, you know, I, okay, we'll think about maybe selling off some, keeping some. But then I thought, it's not fair to my grandchildren. They work here. This is a good place for them. And we just need to work as long as we can. Also, I firmly believe that you should get up every day and work to make a difference. I feel like I can do that here. And not just through her business, but through her foundation, Marcia has made a difference. About five years ago, we started a foundation based on Christian values where we would give back 10% of our earnings each year. One of the things we do is we have a friend that runs a camp in um, Old Town, Florida, because it's a Christian camp. And we take a week, every year we call it Camp Bennett, and we sponsor employees' children or grandchildren. And then we also sponsor kids that just maybe wouldn't have the opportunity to go to the camp. Every year there's usually like 40 or 50 kids will be saved and several they'll be baptized. That's one of the things that we enjoy. We just sponsored several wreaths across America. We put 15,000 wreaths on the graves at Andersonville a Cemetery. From back during the Civil War, Maybe they're old, old gravesides that there's nobody left that remembers those gravesides. Drivers will deliver wreaths to the cemetery and get people wreaths placed on these gravesides. It's, it's a very moving and it's a wonderful way to honor some of our veterans. We try to use this company to help show Christian love. I definitely feel that this is a ministry. It allows us to reach people that we might not reach otherwise both through our foundation and then just every day. I had a uh, vice president of safety, gruff guy. Sometimes his language wasn't the best. Just being here, being in this environment, us saying prayers before meetings, ended up, he came to Christ. And he had told me many times that he thought if he was not working in this environment, that probably would not have happened. Being able to use this company to help people is the greatest sense of fulfillment. And that was Marcia Taylor. What a voice. What a life story. Three babies by 19, small town life in southern Illinois, which is like small town rural life everywhere in this great country. But it made her who she was. A really difficult first marriage, a divorce. She took a chance, moved to another state with not much money gave a shot at a company and a business she didn't even know. 
And my goodness, she knows it now. $500 million in business. But that's not what she's most proud of. You heard it. Keeping the people together through a recession, not laying people off, and transmitting her values through work. And it is one of the great ways we do it, folks. What we do is often who we are and what we make of it. Marcia Taylor's story, an American dreamer's story, as good as any we've done here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and this next one well we always think of Hillsdale College when we tell any stories about American history and Hillsdale is as fine a place as any in this country to send a young person to learn about the country about Western Civ about all the things that matter in life all the things that are beautiful in life and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses go to hillsdale.edu that's hillsdale.edu Few stories are as compelling, as complex, and as mystifying as that of Benedict Arnold. After all, it's a story ripe with moral ambiguity. He was both the greatest of heroes and the darkest of villains. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. Benedict Arnold is hands down America's most infamous turncoat. He has been dead for over 200 years, and his name is still shorthand for traitor as we've seen exemplified in movies like Grumpier Old Men. You traitor, you Benedict Arnold! In spite of his ultimate deception, Benedict Arnold remains one of the most gifted generals America has ever known. Ironically, if it had not been for his prowess and military genius, America might never have been victorious in the Revolutionary War. In May of 1775, Arnold led an attack on the remote British outpost at Fort Ticonderoga. Quick-tempered and strong-willed, Arnold joined forces and immediately clashed with Ethan Allen, the leader of a small militia of frontiersmen known as the Green Mountain Boys. The fort is captured thanks mostly to Benedict Arnold that forces the British to abandon Boston. Both Allen and Arnold wrote extensive reports about the events to the colonial committees. But they only accepted Allen's glorified version that barely mentions Arnold. This would be the beginning of a pattern in Arnold's military career that would repeat itself. Arnold is later given the impossible task of defending New York's Lake Champlain from attack. He constructs the first American naval fleet of 15 small war vessels to engage the British at Valcour Island in October of 1776. Although he was not victorious, his efforts not only established the American Navy, but severely delayed the advancement of the world's finest navy into American territory, allowing Washington's army time to rebuild and resupply. In spite of his aggressive and heroic achievements, the Continental Congress refused to recognize Arnold 
and he was passed over for promotion in favor of junior officers with far less military achievement. George Washington, who was Arnold's close friend and one of the few men who came to his defense, took issue with the Continental Congress's decision, rebuking them for making political rather than strategic military promotions. Here's Washington biographer Adrian Harrison. Washington appreciates the personal sacrifice that Arnold made and the leadership that he used. He sees Arnold's pain, and Washington has really no love for the Continental Congress either. They're not doing a great job supplying him. In September of 1777, Arnold was placed under the command of Horatio Gates at Saratoga in upstate New York. Gates, while never coming within a mile of the fighting, held Arnold back confining him to his tent and refused reinforcements. Defying Gates' orders, Arnold seized a horse and rallied the Americans to victory and took a bullet to the leg and barely survived after being crushed by his own horse. However, it is this shot that will change the course of history and nearly alter the course of independence. Here's Arnold biographer Willard Randall. When the battle was over, his second-in-command said, Sir, where are you hit? And Arnold said, It's my leg. I wish it had been my heart. And I do, too. I wish it had been his heart, because if he had died at that moment, he would have been the great hero of the revolution. The battles of Saratoga are considered by many historians to be one of the top 15 most decisive battles in world history because it becomes the impetus for France to join the Americans against Britain, reinvigorating Washington's Continental Army and providing much-needed supplies and support, saving the revolution once again. Here's historian Paul Hutton. Carried from the battlefield, terribly wounded, Arnold was immediately placed under arrest for having disobeyed orders. But the day is won. It's clear to everyone on the battlefield that Benedict Arnold has won the day. Clear to everyone except Horatio Gates. He denies Arnold credit. He accepts credit for America's greatest victory. General Washington steps in and entrusts the newly reclaimed city of Philadelphia to Arnold. He is now the city's military governor. Away from the battlefield, Arnold takes full advantage of his position, living opulently while using and abusing his position running shady business deals in a lively black market. He has served, he has been wounded severely, and so he starts as a governor to take what he thinks is his due. It is here in April 1779 where the 38-year-old Arnold meets and marries a beautiful, flirtatious, and intense 18-year-old from a very wealthy Loyalist family. Her name is Peggy Shippen. Here's Arnold historian William Stanley. Arnold was to the British what Rama was to the English, what Patton was to the German. In other words, a general who could defeat them. The British wanted Arnold out of there. Without Arnold, they'd win. But Arnold's shady side deals are exposed by the press. Once again, 
Arnold faces a slight against his honor. With an impending court-martial and a public rebuke from General Washington, Arnold and his young bride begin exploring options for disaffection. Despite his reprimand, Washington wants to give his brilliant general a field position of honor. But after Arnold suspiciously lobbies strongly for a non-field position at West Point, in the fall of 1780, Washington makes him the commander of the strategic American stronghold known as the Key to the Continent, a fort on the front lines that bears his own name, Fort Arnold. West Point becomes Arnold's key negotiating resource. Many historians claim he even conspired to turn over General George Washington himself. Here's former superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, Lieutenant General Dave Palmer. West Point was not just a strategic spot. West Point was the strategic spot in the American Revolution. Both sides, British and Americans, agreed on one thing that if the British could ever capture the line of the Hudson, they would probably win the war. It doesn't take long for Arnold's secret plot to be unearthed, causing him to flee West Point for a British warship stationed on the Hudson. Ironically, at this same hour, General Washington was en route to West Point to feast with his trusted friend. Arnold's betrayal is so unexpected and cuts General Washington so deeply that after failing to capture Benedict Arnold, Washington proclaimed, Arnold has betrayed me. Whom can we trust now? Safely behind British lines, Benedict Arnold receives his 20,000 pounds ransom payment and a commission as Brigadier General of 1,600 troops in His Majesty's Army. Benjamin Franklin remarked, Judas sold only one man, Arnold, three million. Benedict Arnold's treason united the 13 colonies and increased their enlistments and re-enlistments in ways that neither he nor the British could have ever foreseen. Benedict Arnold died in London in 1801 at the age of 60, a spiritually, financially, and emotionally broken man. There's a monument on the battlefield at Saratoga National Park, the site of his greatest victory, a boot statue commemorating the permanent wounds General Benedict Arnold sustained with the inscription, in memory of the most brilliant soldier of the Continental Army, who was desperately wounded on this spot, winning for his countrymen the decisive battle of the American Revolution and for himself the rank of Major General. The monument bears no name, and there's good reason. Because there is a law in America passed by the Congress that you can neither chisel the name Benedict Arnold or mold it in metal. So, I mean, they took this guy right off the face of the earth. Benedict Arnold's betrayal is profound. At the same time, America would have never emerged successfully from the Revolutionary War had it not been for his innovative leadership. Here's former military historian at West Point, Major John Hall. 
Were it not for his treason, he would almost undoubtedly be one of the most celebrated American commanders of all of the American Revolution. West Point to this day would probably still be called Fort Arnold rather than West Point. In the years following his death, Arnold's wife Peggy spent her time settling all of his debts, except the biggest one of all, to America, which could never be paid. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler and to all the supporters and contributors to this show. Without their help, this isn't possible. And thanks, as always, to Hillsdale College for all the work that they do. Benedict Arnold's story, a rich, complicated, and ultimately tragic one, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. World War II tank gunner Don Evans sat down with the American Veterans Project, which was created by Congress to collect and preserve the firsthand accounts of wartime vets. After being severely wounded in battle, Don became a prisoner of war. This is his story. You know, the war is winding down, but you don't think it'll ever be over. You just don't. And there wasn't any solid line of defense with the Germans anymore from the North Sea in Holland to, to Switzerland. A lot of that was broken up and it was just solid places, you know. And uh, we crossed the Rhine River, and I remember coming down the bank and went to that pontoon bridge. And it was way across there. I think it was either 1,100 feet or 1,700 feet was the length of that bridge. And you come down on that pontoon bridge and it goes down in the river a little bit. And it's wide and it's deep and it's running. And then you're afraid, man, Jerry's going to shell it while you're on the bridge. And, but we finally got across there. And uh, then they gave us a mission to go on. There was a big canal there called the Dortmund-Ems Canal. It was in that part of Germany where Essen is and Dortmund. It's all built up, a lot of manufacturing, <clears throat> one town after another. And Jerry had blown all the main bridges, not only the primary, but the secondary, most of the third class bridges. But our job was to go in this area. They thought there were some bridges there that were wouldn't hold a tank or a vehicle, but maybe a farmer's bridge where you get some infantry across. Once you get the infantry across, then you can get a little landing place there and the engineers could put up a new bridge. And, but there was three bridges that they had given us. The first two we went to were blown. And then we went to the other area and I could see down along the canal, that bridge was still intact. But we then we started firing, everybody starts firing in case there's some Germans around that bridge, and when they see us coming, they'll blow it. You, you kind of think the firing down there will keep them down, you know, and they won't blow it. But then we got almost onto it, that, then that thing blew up. And then we called in and told them what had happened, you know, and we didn't have anything else. And so then they told us to come on in and 
wherever headquarters was that time was in another little town and it got to be dark and we were once you get into Germany you know when you're in France Belgium and Holland you know they're allies you treat the country nice and the people nice but when you cross that border into Germany it's different then man what is German is German and what is no what is American is American what is German is American you take whatever you just want. And when you first got into Germany, the looks they gave you, you know, they left you know, you're not wanted here. You know, and they don't smile or nothing. And you, you just go into their homes and or whatever you see, you know, you just take. And like I say to GIs, he's after everything. <laughs> there was pots and pans hanging on tanks and vehicles and you saw the infantry carrying this and that that they'd take out of German homes. When you dig a hole in the ground, you'd go in the German house, man, get yourself a nice blanket to put in there on the dirt and stuff. It was different then, man. <clears throat> and they couldn't believe it, man. You had come 5,000 miles and finally you're in their homeland. And uh, some of them would, were kind of nice to you. Of course, the German, or the American too, you know, he's always after the ladies. So then they put out the non-fraternization law. Did you ever hear the guys talk about that? And that came out. And so, of course, a lot of the GIs, they wouldn't pay any attention to that. And I don't know what the fine was if you got caught. It was either $35 or $65 that they would take out of your pay, you know, if you got talking to a German civilian. So that's the way it was when you, when you got into Germany. But then anyway, they called us back, and that night we were in this German house. They're in part of the house, and we just go in. And uh, But before that... Before we had gotten the Rhine River, we, were, we got to the Rhine River and we were called back. And we went into a German house. Big big house. The house and the barn is under the same roof. And we would just take over the bedrooms and the big kitchen. And the Germans, they could have one of the kitchens in the, the other part of the house, you know, but we would take over. So we'd have a place to sleep and we would cook in the kitchens. That's what we were doing this night after we had uh, got up there to the to the canal, and uh, then the, the order came down, they were hollering, stand to alert. When they hollered, stand to alert, the GI cusses like he never cussed before. This is one of the, the things out in Hollywood, the guy said, did you cuss? I said, yeah, we cussed, it was the first language most of the time. <laughs> when they holler, stand to alert, it means get all your equipment together, man, we're moving out, and man, we, we thought we were going to have a nice night, and then the orders come down. They said that now we're going to be pulling out of here and we're going on a mission tonight. We're going behind the enemy lines, and uh, you, nobody's going to be out there but Jerry, and it's going to be dark. And with some kind, of, they don't tell you what the mission is, but they said time was the the essence, and they said if we run into any action till daybreak tomorrow, whenever this mission is done, if you can't knock, get out of it, knock it off, pull out and go, just let it behind you. Don't, don't spend any time trying to find jury or knocking him out. Just try to get around him to go on with the mission. We did find out later on what the mission was. So then we, we mounted up and we had, uh, I guess the, earlier that afternoon, we went through some of them barns. You were always scrounging around 
not only looking for something to eat or something to drink, but maybe some juries that are hiding out. And you run into a lot of alcohol, home brew and stuff. <laughs> and some of it came in, in jugs, man, this high. The basket whipped around them. And then you'd, you'd get in there and pour it out into something small and then pour it into little things and stack it in every little place in your tank, you know. <laughs> and that's what we done. We, we had every empty spot in the tank, man. All the vehicles, too, man. Bottles of schnapps. And you're listening to World War II tank owner Don Evans, who had become a prisoner of war. We love having you hear these stories direct. When we continue, more in tank owner Don Evans here on Our American Stories. We continue here on Our American Stories with tank gunner Don Evans and his World War II narrative. When we last left off, Don and his men were on a reconnaissance mission to locate and secure one of the few bridges in town that the Germans hadn't yet blown up. So we pull out and it's dark and uh, no action yet. <clears throat> and I'm sitting in the gunner seat. We had lost a guy the day before, so I didn't have a loader. But the, the tank commander who was sitting down front came up and sat in the gunner seat alongside of me. So we're going along, it must have been about 11 o'clock at night, I guess, and here come a, a German freight train coming down on the right side of the road, coming out of Germany. He didn't know how far the Americans were up there. We didn't know that they were coming either, but that tra train was coming down there and everybody just swung their guns around there and shot that thing up. You know, and somebody must have put a big shell in the boiler and it blew up and you could hear Jerry screaming and hollering. But we didn't go near there and, the, you know, there's big fires down there and then the orders came to move on. So we went on and <clears throat> we stopped at 5.30 in the morning. And uh, we got out of the tanks, everybody just piles out and just threw all caution to the wind. It's just unbelievable. There wasn't any action during the night, we just didn't think there was going to be any. So we stopped to take a 15-minute break, give the vehicle a break and the men to take a break. So I pile out of the vehicle and gunners hang out with gunners and drivers with gunners or drivers and so forth, you know. That's how you buddy up and carry on, get along. So coming up alongside of my tank was a guy, this guy from New Britain, Connecticut Vince. And we were smoking there. Generally, and it just started to get daylight, barely daylight. You know, you're very careful if you smoke at night. You know, you're smoking like this, covering the, the cigarette, you know. But I don't think that we had, it wasn't really dark yet, but, but we, we weren't paying any attention to it. And so then you have little stoves in a vehicle about that high, and gasoline, you pump them up. And, put your canteen cup on there with the water in it, and make your coffee. So that's what we've done. We said, well, let's go back here and see Jim Cherry. So we're walking down the road. All our vehicles are lined up and everybody's out on the road. It's a very narrow blacktop road. And uh, 
we get near Jim Cherry, they had a big Sherman tank with 105 on it, artillery piece. They got the Shermans when we got the, the light tanks, before they had a light tank. So I see Jim up on the turret, and he's grabbing the 50, and he swings that around, you know, and he starts firing. And here comes a German truck up the side of the road. He may, maybe he was in our column all night after dark, nobody paid him mind. I don't know. And maybe he stayed in the column. Of, I, I, I don't know. But when he saw that, the truck swerved over and turned over on its side. Well, then all the GIs there, they're over there rooting through the truck to see what they can find. The driver is dead, but they pull the assistant driver out. So then they, the trash is all over the road there. I, I mean, just crazy. And uh, so then the order come to mount up. We had to go on. So I'm standing up in the turret of the tank. My, uh, my loader, who was a tank commander, he said, well, you, you got some sleep during the night. Now I'll take a nap. Down in front in the light tanks, there's two seats, a driver and assistant driver. They're like little stuffed chairs. Not very big, but they're comfortable. And you could sleep in those. So he went down and got in there. And I said, oh, I don't think we'll need the way things are going. John won't need you. So then a jeep calls up alongside the, our tank. And uh, it was out of the scout section. In the scout section, your, your platoon is <clears throat> broken up into the armored car section with the tank and the artillery section and the scout section. They have jeeps. So there's a guy, when the jeep stopped, there's a guy sitting there in the assistant driver's seat. His name is Shorty Mercer. Shorty was the kind of guy, he'd been in the Army a thousand years. You know, he'd never learned how to soldier. But everybody loved him. He was a little rotund guy. His cigarette was always hanging down in his mouth, you know, and always smoking. And his hat was always coming down over his face, bumping on his nose. He was like that wherever you'd see him. And he would be always singing, uh, he was from the South, and he was always singing the Big Bouquet of Roses or Walking the Floor Over You, something like that, you know, hillbilly guy. And he said, hey, you need a gunner, a loader up there, don't you? I said, nah, I'm all right, shorty. He said, oh, let me up there. I said, what do you want up here for? And he said, I said, it's cold up here like it is in a Jeep. He said, yeah, but I'll be out of the wind. I said, well, come on up there. So he gets up and he sits and gets in the, the loader seat, which is to my right. I'm sitting on the left. And we go through the thing about loading the gun. He didn't have to do anything, really. When I would fire the big gun, I'd just pull the handle. The breech would pop open. The empty would come out. And all he'd have to do is throw the other one in. And I'd go like that, you know. So he got up and he got in, got in there and we talked a little bit. And, and we're still sitting on the street, on the, the road, and, and here comes a platoon later from the head of the column. And I see him coming, I, was, I didn't even know what he wanted, and I knew that he didn't want me. So he gets alongside our tank, and you know, and he looks up and he said, where's Sergeant Selby? I said, down front. I said, he wants to take a break. And he said, well, that's okay, Evans. He said, now we're just going down here, there's little bridges down here, we want to see if they're gonna be heavy enough or strong enough to hold the tanks. He said, and now he said, and I said, he said then, he said, you know, everybody gets a chance to go first. He said, now it's your turn to go first. Well, nobody 
wants to go first. Nobody. And I said, yes, sir. He said, have your driver get out and go to the head of the column. So I hollered down to the driver, was Harold Asher, was from Kansas City, Michigan. I said, did you get the good news? Then he starts swearing. I said, do what he says, pull out and go to the head of the column. We pulled out and went to the head of the column, then we started out. We hadn't gone uh, 50 feet, I guess, and I saw a big red flash on the right side of the road. It just big ball of fire lit up. I dropped down, dropped down in the in my seat, and you do like you always do. You lean forward to look into the sights. Your right hand, left hand goes to your switches. You grab the turret switch. It's like a pistol grip. If you turn it left and right, that's the way the turret will go. But the more you turn it left and right, the faster it'll turn. Plus, for your two guns in your turret, you have the triggers on top of that. In other words, you can grab that thing, you have two triggers that press down with the thumb. So just about I'd lean forward, that thing had hit, the, hit that turret. Lit up the inside of that turret, man, that turret got, got cherry red. And right away, our guys started firing on the Germans. And a lot of firing going on, the Germans were firing back. And then, within a couple of minutes, our guys done what we were told to do to break it off. So they broke off the fire and went on. So Asher, the driver, had bailed out, so I bailed out. And I knew I was hurt, but I didn't know that I couldn't see. And But I knew, I'm pretty sure that where that, turret, that shell had hit, it had killed Shorty. I jump out on the sponsor and jump as far as I could to get away from the tank. The tank's burning. And down in the ditch. And Asher is in the ditch. And now the ammo is starting to go off in the tank. And the Germans aren't even coming to us. I hear the Germans talking. And I'm laying there in the ditch, and I really thought I was going to die. I really wanted to die. I thought if I looked that bad the way I thought I felt, you know, I didn't want to go back home. And then I thought, we are behind the lines, and our guys are gone. Nobody will find our bodies. Nobody, my family will never know what happened to me. So then we're laying in the ditch, and the Germans still haven't come for us, but everything's quiet, except the fire burning in the tank. And I knew we were going to be taken prisoner. So I'm going with my hands in my jacket pockets here, pulling out some medals that I had taken off a jury the day before. And I knew if they caught me with that stuff, it would be bad news. So then just, the Germans are still talking, but nobody's coming for us. And you're listening to Don Evans, a POW tank gunner. Oh my goodness, the story doesn't get more compelling than this. Side in the road, in a ditch, he can hear the Germans. He knows he's going to get taken prisoner. He's wondering if, well, if he dies and he'll ever be able to claim his body, being that he's 5,000 miles from home. More from Don Evans, his story in his own words, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with World War II tank hunter Don Evans. When we left off, Don's tank had been hit by turret fire, and he was now laying in a ditch beside it with another soldier as they waited for the Germans to approach. So I said to Asher, how do I look? I wasn't hurting, not much. And he didn't say anything. I said, how do I look? And he said, you look awful or something to that effect. The first time he went answered, then I asked him again. So then he, I said, well, go in my first aid kit and take my, you had a first aid kit on your belt. It had a little packet of sulfur powder in there. And besides a couple other things, I said, well, get that sulfur powder and sprinkle on my face. So he'd done that, and then we laid there, and, and then I, then I didn't want to die. I just had a desire, man, for some reason I, I wanted to live. But I just couldn't figure out, why aren't the juries coming for us? Our guys are going. So then I, I said to Asher, we ought to try to get out of here. And he said, no, we can't get out. And about that time, he says, here comes a German officer. So all drivers carry 45s and shoulder holsters. So, of course, when he bailed out, he had his, his 45. So he says, here comes that German officer. And when the German officer is coming, then I hear him challenge him to put up his hands. Handy hawk is the word. You don't pronounce it like that, I guess. That's not the German pronunciation. But the jury knows what you're saying. And as soon as he says Handy Hawk, I guess the jury went for his gun or something. Harold, Harold Asher shoots him and kills him. And still they don't come for us. And now I know we're dead. He shot that German officer. I know there's no way out, man. We're, we're going to die right here. But we laid there a few minutes and still no jury. Tank's burning. And I said to Asher, we got to get out of here. The tank's going to blow up. I said, I'm going to stand up, and I said, if I knew it was a blacktop road. I said, I'll take one step at a time. With my hands in the air, my hands in the air, maybe they won't shoot me. So he said, well, I'll go with you. So then we both get up, and he gets a hold of me, and we just took a couple of steps, and then when he ran into some Germans, you know, and then they took us to, a, to another guy that was a German officer was a different story then. He spoke good English, but man, was he stinking rotten mad, boy. But uh, see, I can't see, and I'm like this. Now I'm start, really starting to hurt. And I'm sure Asher had his hands up too. And he takes us to this German officer. Asher's telling me that he's an officer. And this German officer shouts and hollers at Asher, really screams at him. You shot and killed a German officer. And Asher says, I did not, I did not. And this guy is really mad. You know, if the shoe's on the other foot, you know, we're supposed to be getting shot by this time. That's what you do. Good thing I didn't even carry a pistol. And he, he said, we saw you, we saw you. And then I just knew then they were getting ready to kill us. And then finally he says, <coughs> you can put your hands down, I guess that's war. You know, and I dropped my hands. I wasn't a Christian at that time, but I knew about God. And these are two words I said, thank you, Lord. So they took us and they loaded us in a, I don't know if you ever seen pictures of the, the Kubelwagens, the German wagon. So they loaded us in that. 
in the back seat. And I believe this was one of them that had the roof on it, I thought. They loaded us in the back. But on the floor was the body of that German officer that Asher killed. So they loaded us in that truck and we drove a little bit. And then the car stopped. And German civilians gathered around the car. And, and then they're talking. And then I could hear one German speaking like, Zwei Panzer, Zwei Panzer. Second armor, he saw my patch, you know. And then there's our planes are daylight now, our planes are flying around up there. And I just knew that they were looking for some something down there that's moving, you know, ready to come down and strafe it. Then I said to Asher, that's our next thing here, we're gonna get killed by our own planes. So then we move on and then we're sl slowing down again and Asher says, it looks like it's a a military something or other. So we're ordered to get out of the car. So we get out of the car. And then we go in a little building. It is some kind of a military thing, Asher's telling me. So I'm sitting over there. Asher's sitting over here. And then there comes a German in there. And uh, he's talking. Of course, I don't talk because I can't see what's going on. So then he says something to Asher in English. So then he, he said something about, I have to go, I'll be right back. So I'm sitting over there on the bench, really hurting now, man. I oh, just can't hardly hack it. I said to Asher, when he comes back, ask him if he'll give me some morphine. So when he comes back, Asher approached him or said to him, he's really hurting, he's having some pain, a lot of pain. Do you have any morphine? This guy is arrogant and loudmouth too, boy. A very good English man. This is what he screamed out. He said, you Americans are supposed to have everything. Where's your morphine? Till the war was over, until this day, when they write about losing the war, they tell us about the material of the Americans. Yep. And he said, you Americans are supposed to have everything. So he goes and he comes back with the morphine, and he shoots me in the arm here. Then I laid out back on the bench. I started feeling pretty good then and went to sleep. When I wake up, you know I'm on a litter. Asher's gone, I don't know where I am, I don't even know what time it is. I'm being carried up a flight of stairs on a litter, two guys. And they set the litter down on the floor. And then I hear some girls talking. And I don't know why I thought this, but I thought they were probably nurses. So they're talking between the two of them, the four of them. So then they take me off the, lift me up off the, the litter and stand me up. They take the litter and I hear them going down the stairs. And the, the girls are talking in German. I don't know what they're talking about, but they take all my clothes off and put me in a tub and gave me a bath. Would you believe that? and then put a nightgown on me. Man, I hadn't been in a nightgown, man, since I was a kid. And then they put me in bed. And all the time they're talking and, and what is sad about it, man, the only language being spoken is that of the enemy. Then daylight came, it was Easter, Easter Sunday, 1945. Then the nurses were in there and come over to the bed and do this and that around the bed, you know, and, and speak it to me. And, then the, the German would come in and he'd sit there and 
you know, I'd, I'd eat and he'd talk. And, and that went on for, I guess, six or seven more days. Then the German comes in one morning, you know, and he said, your comrades are coming, your comrades are coming. Man, Flanagan wants to hear, here are some Americans. And uh, he said, uh, the civilians saw a scout car outside of town. I was, man, a scout car for rec reconnaissance. Maybe it's my guys. Man, they kind of got me ready to, to get rid of me, you know, to send me out. Man, I was there all day, man. Every moment, every minute passed by, man, they didn't come. Man, night came, and still they didn't come. Then they came running in the, in the building. I guess it was four or five. I'm right here running up the stairs. and I guess the Germans told them I was in there, you know. Then they wanted to know my name and serial number and my unit and did I need anything and how did they treat me and all this and that. And then it wasn't long after that, and the ambulance came by and loaded me up, took me out of there. But it was quite an experience. And you've been listening to World War II tank hunter Don Evans. And my goodness, the details, his tank, the seats, that German wagon with that dead German officer. And we're going to keep telling these stories because we should and because you want them. And by the way, if you ever get a chance, go to the World War II Museum in New Orleans. It is spectacular, a great trip for the family. And you can hear so many of these stories there. World War II tank gunner Don Evans, here on Our American Stories. And we're back with Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of stories about families on this show. And today, we bring you some stories from Mark Oppenheimer, whose piece in the Wall Street Journal really caught our attention. It's titled, Yes, We Really Do Want to Have a Fifth Child. Mark, a few generations ago, a family having four or more kids would have been nothing remarkable. But now, that's increasingly rare. As you wrote, quote, in 1976, 40% of mothers aged 40 to 44 had four or more children. Today, only 13% do. And when it comes to mothers with graduate degrees, like your wife, only 8%. Talk a little about how you and your bride decided that you wanted a big family. When we first met, before we were even dating, my wife and I were talking one time, and it came up just naturally that I thought four would be a nice number of children to have. And, and I, I'm one of four children. I'm the eldest of four children in the family that I come from. So that always seemed perfectly normal. And then my wife, who's one of two, said, oh, yeah, I always thought my family seemed a little small. I thought it'd be nice if there were three or four of us. So we both had a sense that four was a, a nice number of children to have. And we were very lucky, and we, we had four children in the first 10 years uh, of our marriage. Actually, I guess we had four children in the first eight years of our marriage. And then um, a couple years ago, we were talking, and I forget who said it first, but one of us said, wouldn't it be fun to have one more? And I, the other one said, yeah, that'd be fun. And so then we did. And I think it was not something that we interrogated too deeply. It was not, we didn't go and check our bank account. We knew that we would be as... Um, as, as impoverished uh, 
with five, we would be, we would be, it, it, you know, either way, we weren't taking fancy vacations with four kids or five. It, you know, once you're up to four kids and, and you're on the salary of a, of a writer uh, and, and uh, you know, my wife is, is mostly a homemaker, though she's a lawyer by training. You know, we're not wealthy people. We don't have regular paid child care. But if you're going to be home with four, you might as well be home with five, and it's one more person to love. So I don't have, a, I don't have any profound thoughts on it, except we did what we wanted to do. And it's a free country, so we, we were able to do that. Indeed. And, and by the way, you note in the piece, we are not conservative traditionalists, not Orthodox Jews, old school Catholics, or Mormons. Nor are we lefty counterculturalists. We have no aversion to birth control, chemical or otherwise. We're pretty basic middle-class HBO watchers. My idea of living on the edge is refusing to give up soda. So, <laughs> so talk about the becauses. One of them that was interesting, you brought up your Jewishness. Talk about that, because I think that's important. I've had conversations with my Jewish friends who said, you know, hey, we're just we're, we're shrinking in numbers. There's debate about Jewish numbers. Uh, there's debate about demography. What is certainly true is that the community of Jews who are not Orthodox or what they call ultra-Orthodox Jews is shrinking. The number of Jews who are Reform or Conservative Jews uh, by denomination is uh, pretty precarious and is, is probably crashing over the next couple of generations. And I do think that for, for Jewry to be a robust uh, community, a robust and diverse community that's not all based in a couple smaller sects. It's auspicious if there are, you know, lots of babies in all of those communities. I wouldn't say that's why we had a fifth child, but right. I, take, I take some pleasure in the fact, I mean, I, it, it cheers me that there is at least one family, and we do know of others, for whom this is a real choice, you know, irrespective of some commandment from God not to use birth control, which is not who we are culturally or religiously. This, this, for many families, is a delightful way to live, and that the, the community, and, and in our case, we have a lot of identities, Jewish is one, and you know, American is another, but, but speaking of the Jewish community, that it's, um, that it's good for the community to have families of different sizes. But we certainly have plenty of people modeling not having children or having only one or two, and I think it's great if there are models of people having four or five. Indeed, and I think there are some parts of this country where you start walking around and pushing five, six kids you're going to get some really weird glances. And, and by, by virtue of the opposite, there are some communities in this country where if you're married and you have no kids, you'll get some weird looks. And there were a bunch of other becauses, and this is the answer to why did you have a fifth child. And I'm going to go through a few of them, and I'd love sure. to have you comment. Because every one of our four children has improved my life. Talk about that. Well, that's true. I think that anyone who has any number of children, if, if it's a relatively normally happy family, which means happy sometimes and other times in conflict or fighting or, you know, having the normal struggles people have. But if you're a relatively normal family, one of the things that's true about having even one child is once the child comes along, within a few weeks or months, you can't imagine your life before that child. They become part of what you're grateful for when you think of your own existence. And for us, and I think for all people who have multiple children, that's as true of the second and third and fourth as it is of the first. I don't think that anyone wants to trade in any one of their children or give back any one of their children. I mean, sometimes you do. Right, sometimes. <laughs> right? sometimes I can tell you, I, you know, I'll send this one away. And, you know, at those times, it's, that's what grandma and grandpa's house is for. You know, there is a kind of logic to the fact that whatever the next child you have is, you will love that child as much as you loved the last one. And so there is a kind of drive to have more, I think. Another because. Because with a big family, I never have to feel guilty about the clutter. 
<laughs> I forgot I wrote that. Yeah. That's true. I mean, I'm not a super neat and tidy person. And if I had no children, I'd have a lot of clutter, but then I'd be a little bit ashamed of it. <laughs> but with five children, everyone says, oh, of course, you know, how, how could you have a neat house? So it does, it does let you off the hook for some things. I mean, uh, you know, another example of that is if you have one child, you might feel, well, I have to save enough to send this child to college. When you have five children, there's no prayer that I can afford to send them all to college without a lot of financial aid. So there are ways in which taking on more can be liberating. Indeed. And you also wrote this, because I'm scared of being alone. Absolutely. I mean, I, and I think most parents, if they're being honest, would say that that's part of why we, we grow our families, whether it's just from one person to two, if you're a single person who has a child or adopts a child, or if it's a couple that has one, all the way up to having eight or nine or ten children, I do think that children are, are hedges against against loneliness. And um, and I'm someone who tends toward loneliness. I'm actually not a great um, I'm not great at being at at solitude. Uh, some people are. I'm not. I like having people around, and it, it's reassuring to me. So having children around is is very comforting. I mean, they are they are. They're children, but they're also companions and friends and, and comforters, and I think that's really nice. Because my 11-year-old likes poker, and for that, she needs more players. <laughs> well, that's, and that is true. We've trained up the 10-year-old. Our 8-year-old is not really into poker yet, so we have two more, Anna, who's five, and then the, the new boy. We'll get, we'll get him there when he's three or four. But if we could have a good five- or six-person you know, hold'em game with just our family, that would be a huge win. Yeah, and you're going to have to teach me on this because my 13-year-old is a fearless Hold'em player because he's always playing with my money. Well, we, you've got to play with chips. I mean, you don't, don't actually, you know, when he's ready to play with money, you send him out into high school to earn some money. Indeed. Okay, a couple of more becauses. Because when I think of those countries where birth rates are so low that nobody has siblings anymore, I get sad. I do. I do. I think, that's, I think siblinghood is, is wonderful. I was really lucky... I am really lucky to have three siblings, and, um, and it's hard to imagine life without them. They are the people who know you best. They're the only people who know what it is to grow up in your household with your parents, your grandparents, and that's a very special relationship. And I, do, I don't believe that – I don't believe what some of my only children friends tell me, which is, oh, well, cousins make up the difference or close friends make up the difference. I don't think it's the same. Absolutely. And because not being inclined to rock climbing – Microdosing or day trading, I need something a little risky. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I would say that I, many of my friends have that thing that they do that sets them apart a little bit, especially as we get middle-aged and boring in lots of other ways. And, uh, you know, whether it's some sort of mildly extreme sport or whether it's, you know, gambling, which is not something I do, again, outside of the family uh, poker table. And, uh, but, you know, having a fifth kid, strikes people as, as, uh, as a little bit edgy. So I'm, I'm happy to... <laughs> I've got to do something that raises people's eyebrows, right? I, mean, I, don't, I don't wear weird bow ties. So right. <laughs> what am I going to do? What are you going to do? And this could be the best of all of them, I think, because having children has made our marriage stronger. Well, that's true. And I, I, you know, how could, I guess there are marriages that are weakened by children. I mean, in our case, in a very kind of prosaic, obvious way... It gives us even more common ground, even more things that we uh, that only we understand about each other, which is to say, being the parent of this child or this one or this one or this one or this one. Um, and 
look, let's be frank, it's really hard to split up if you're together supporting five kids or even one kid. I mean, I think that I think marriages without children are more likely um, to fail because there's less of a common project and it's easier to separate. Um, that doesn't mean people should have children to, to stay together. I, don't, I think that would be a, a false inference. But, um, but certainly in our case, we feel more unified and like we have more to, that we can only do in the world together because we have children. Well, there's more ties that bind in the end. I mean, infinitely more ties that bind uh, with more kids. Because I'm going to weep like a baby when I drop my youngest daughter for her first day of kindergarten. And it will help if I know it's not my last first day of kindergarten. Well, that's true. I'm very sappy. So... <laughs> Every every milestone pretty much destroys me. So as I need I need more milestones coming down the pike. And now you know I'm 44 and my son was just born. So you know I'll be 62 before we're empty nesters. So by then maybe I'll be a little bit hardened and uh, and cynical and able to take it a little bit more. But uh, but not yet. Well, we want to thank you, Mark, for joining us. Mark's the author of the Wall Street Journal essay. Yes, we really do want to have a fifth child. Mark has a PhD in religious studies at Yale. His wife is a lawyer. He's been writing, well, about all kinds of things for places like the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, and Atlantic. Mark Oppenheimer's story, his family's story, here on Our American Story.